today's Bible reading shall be taken from the book of Psalm 120 and 121, respectively. Psalm 120. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from the sacrifice. What will he do, and what more beside, O disciples? We punish you with a warrior's sharp arrow, with burning pole of the brown tree. What will mean that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Peda? Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, for when I speak, they are freedom. Psalm 131. I lift up my heart to the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot sleep. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will never slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you. I say, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forever. May God bless the reading of this world. Good morning and welcome again. My name is Jonathan Hoffman. I'm the privilege of serving as senior pastor at Windsor District Baptist Church. Uh, it's so good to be with you this morning as we begin a new series through the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, we've titled this series Pilgrim Songs, and these are songs that are sung on, by people who are on their way up, as it were, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, this week marked the conclusion of the United States along with a number of other countries, their presence in Afghanistan. And as I was reflecting and reading this week, I came across a very uh, intriguing, intriguing bit of information that I want to share with you. Over a period of 15 days, 122,000 people were evacuated by air out of Afghanistan. It is the largest air evacuation in the shortest amount of time in the history of humanity. 122,000 people airlifted out of a country. This recognizes the urgency, the need to depart. Such an effort to get people out of trouble, out of harm's way, all the while knowing that we couldn't get everyone. This effort of escape ties in well with where we're starting this journey in the Psalms of Ascent. These songs begin from a place of trouble and they end in the very presence of God. The premise for this series is that salvation is a journey by faith that terminates, culminates, ends in the presence of God. And these songs are songs for that journey. In fact, this journey is one that will die without hope. And so this theme of pilgrim songs, it's meant to refresh our hearts as we travel along that way, as we travel along the journey. 
You could say that these pilgrim songs are songs that are born as faith gives voice to hope. Faith as it's walking. Faith as it's moving and journeying. As it goes forward is given voice by hope. And in this voice, songs arise. These are songs for going up to God in the presence of Jerusalem. And they're songs for us as well. And I just want to look for a moment at why we might study these psalms. First of all, they they evoke faith in God's power. If we're going to make this journey into the kingdom of Christ, we need to remember God's power. We need to rely on that. And these songs, these psalms evoke faith in his power. They also convey hope in God's promises. They mediate for us the truth and the certainty and the reality that God can and will accomplish the good that he's purposed to do. They also express a love for God's presence. And here we see that trinity of virtues for the Christian of faith and hope and love. And in these songs, they express that love, that desire to be with God and to be in his presence. They're going to, in effect, carry us from exile to the altar, from a faraway place into the very place where God meets his people. And in this, and this is really cool, they will join us with Jesus on his journey. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been working through that Gospel for a long time, and you might be asking yourself, why would we stop here? The answer is, it's a natural stopping place in the Gospel of Luke because, as Stephen preached last week, it's the end of that part of Jesus' ministry. In Luke's Gospel, it's the conclusion of the Galilean ministry. And in chapter 9, verse 51, we read that from this point, Jesus set his face and turned toward Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus knew it was in Jerusalem that God's plans and purposes would be accomplished. It was in Jerusalem that he would suffer and die and raise from the dead. It's from Jerusalem that he would ascend to the right hand of the Father. It was in Jerusalem that Jesus would accomplish his exodus and that he would initiate the exodus of not just God's people but Gentiles like you and me. And you can only imagine what Jesus might have been thinking about as he was preparing to go to Jerusalem, the place where the festivals were held, the place where God said he would put his name, the temple where God was worshipped. Knowing the suffering that would await him, but also knowing the glory that would come and would be revealed, you can only imagine what Jesus might have been thinking as he made that journey with his disciples. It's an invitation that they were given, and it's an invitation that we are given. And every Christian is invited into this journey, this journey to Jerusalem, a journey of discipleship, a journey of faith, the journey of a pilgrim. And so these songs, these psalms, are meant to refresh our hearts. But like many of the best stories, this journey starts in a faraway place. And like the news pictures showed us this week, there is real trouble in this world. There is real danger. There is real turmoil. There is a real need to get out. But getting out isn't just 
a momentary instance. It's the beginning of a journey. So I invite you to pray with me now as we begin by looking at these psalms. Father, would you bless us this morning as we come to your word. May you give voice to our hope. May your spirit encourage and strengthen us, we ask, as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to these psalms, I invite you to open your Bible. We're going to be looking at two psalms today, Psalm 120 and Psalm 121. And these two psalms are in some ways antithetical or contrasting to each other. They're, they're different. These two psalms, one is sweet and one is bitter. One is reassuring and one is disturbing. One is full of anguish and the other one is full of assurance. But when taken together, these psalms do something quite powerful, almost like you're sitting at a fine restaurant and the chef brings out a plate and you thought, I never would have put these two ingredients together. I would never have put this 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 really acerbic, this, this acidic dish. I wouldn't have paired it with this really sweet element. But it's in the balance that the true joy is found. It's in taking these two psalms together that we can savor the truth and the certainty of God's promises. This is certain hope, but it comes from a place of rugged realism. And you only see that when you take these psalms together. But the thing that links these psalms together is the need for help or the desire for help. And it raises for us the question this morning, where are we looking for help? Where are you casting your eyes? That is, if indeed we're looking. If you're someone this morning who's come and, and you're, you're listening to this and you're hearing this and you say, actually, I feel pretty much quite settled, then these psalms aren't really going to speak to you. Because both of these psalms come from a place of needing help. And it begs the question for us, where do we look for help? Now, I know you've, if you've been in the church for some time, you, you say, ooh, ooh, I know the answer, it's Jesus. I say Jesus, did I get it right? Yes, of course. But let me ask this in another way. If you don't answer God or Jesus, where else are you looking for help? That actually might be the truer picture. Sure, we know the Sunday school answer. We know what to say. Yes, I'm supposed to look to God for help. Oh, that, that's where I'm looking. But if you can't say God, you can't say Jesus, where are you looking for help? Do you find it in your job? You find it in your sense of purpose. You find it in your reputation, in the things people say about you. Do you find your sense of help in your own understanding of life, in your own reason, in your own knowledge, in your ability to comprehend the world around you? Do you find your help in your financial security? In knowing that you'll have the means to get through not just this week, but maybe this year? and maybe even all the way through retirement? Do you find your help in your family? Do you find your help in your lover? Do you find your help in your coworkers? In those pieces of paper we hang on the wall that says you've completed this degree? Do you find your help in your status? Do you find your help in your looks? 
in your charm? Do you find your help in knowing that you have all your comforts close at hand and that you can at a moment's notice if you need to escape and immerse yourself in those comforts? Do you find your help in your skill? In the thing that makes you you? Where are we looking for help if indeed we're looking at all? But these psalms, when paired together, they, they bring to us this overarching theme that we will see God's help when we seek God's presence. This is not to say that God is not helping you when you're not seeking his presence. That's not what this is saying. This is saying you will see God's help when you seek his presence. The awareness and the understanding and the consciousness of the nearness of God comes when we set our hearts in seeking after him. Yes, by his grace, you may, through the revelation of the Spirit, be given insight into just how he's protecting you and how he's helping you at any given time, but you won't have the constant assurance and the re recourse of knowing that your helper is near until you have set your heart to seek his face. You could say it this way, you won't see his help unless you seek his presence. Our outline today is quite simple. We have two songs and one heart. A song to cry for help, it's Psalm 120. A song to see the helper, that's Psalm 121. And finally, a heart to make the journey. A song to cry for help, a song to see the helper, and a heart to make the journey. Look with me as we consider these psalms. First, Psalm 120, a song to cry for help when we are stranded from God and surrounded by liars. Psalm 120, a song of ascent or for going up. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Nancy DeClasse Walford about this psalm says, words are a powerful commodity. Humanity has been given the gift of speech by the creator God. We can use it for good or for oppression and hurtfulness. As we come to this psalm, we see that the psalmist is in distress. But specifically, it is to the Lord that he cries. The NIV has sort of smoothed it out for our ears, but both verse one and verse two begin by addressing the Lord. You might retranslate it this way, to the Lord I called in my distress, and he answered me. O Lord, save me from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. To the Lord, he cries. 
The psalmist here is in a place of distress. You say, why is he distressed? It's because he looks around and he finds himself surrounded by people who are deceitful, by people whose words speak malice and lies. He looks around and he feels displaced. As one commentator, Derek Kidner, would put it, he's an outsider. He wakes up one day and he looks around and he realizes that he can't trust anybody around him. That at the core of his being, he is not of the same kind. He's not of the same ilk as the people in which he dwells with community. The psalmist is alone. The psalmist is distressed. There are few things that are more intolerable in life than to find yourself in a community but to realize you are not one with that community. To find yourself surrounded by people who will speak to you but whose words you cannot take to heart. You cannot take them to heart because they do not arise from the truth, they do not align from a holy perspective and they sting and they wound. They can't be trusted. You lean on them and they break. They fracture and they splinter and their scars remain. And the psalmist wakes up and he realizes and his despair and his grief is so great he can't do anything else but say woe upon me. Woe to me, verse five, that I dwell in Meshach. You say, where is Meshach and where is Kedar? Meshach and Kedar are, are two places that are really not close to each other. And so for that reason, the psalmist is probably not describing literally his geographic location at the moment, but he's describing existentially, metaphorically, where he is. You say, where's that? Well, Meshach, we know from early accounts in Genesis, was probably in Asia Minor, sort of the, the upper northwest, the, the, the very northern fringes of the promised land, outside the boundaries of God's territory. You say, where's Kedar? Kedar was a descendant of Ishmael, and, and the, the people of Kedar were known to live in tents to the south of the promised land. And so he says, woe that, I, that I'm up on the northern outskirts and woe that I'm down south with these peoples. The point is not where he is physically. The point is where he is spiritually. He's far away. He's far from God and he's far from his presence. And all he can do is say, woe. Now you don't call down woe on yourself until you're actually in despair. The cry of woe is the cry of death. It's the cry of helplessness. But thankfully, that's not the only cry. Because in this, in here, the psalmist begins by directing his cry to the Lord. To the Lord I called in my distress, and he answered me. Oh Lord, save me. You see, what do you do when you find yourself in a community like this? What do you do when you find yourself displaced? 
we're faced with a series of choices. For many people, when they're surrounded like this, the pressure to conform becomes so great that they just give up and they give in and they assimilate. And they say, this, this disconnect, this, this being surrounded by people in my face who speak to me of, of lies, who speak to me of things that, that, that I know aren't true, I cannot bear to continue hearing and living among these people. I, I will simply join them. Because it's better to be loved. It's better to be accepted than to suffer. That's one option that the psalmist had. Another option the psalmist had was to take up arms and to retaliate. To start his own crusade. But notice what he does. He doesn't actually take up arms. Instead, in, in almost a, a reserved taunt or a mock, verses 3 and 4, he reminds them of what's coming. Verse 3 and 4. This, this might be difficult for some of you. He turns to address this community that he's in. And he does it, I'm gonna teach you a word here, kids, by a, a poetic function called a synecdoche, a synecdoche, <laughs> whereby he uses one part of their body and describes them as that. If you have a big head like me, someone might say, oh yeah, go over there, talk, talk to big head over there. <laughs> if you're someone who's got a big nose, they might say, oh yeah, go, go talk to the schnoz over there. Here, he addresses those around him by their defining feature. And he says, what will he do? That is, what will Yahweh do to you, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. This is really interesting. What he's doing is he's, he's taking a common curse formula a common formula in the Old Testament among God's people. Ruth does this when, she is, when she's trying to convince Naomi that she's not going to leave. Ruth goes to her and says, may the Lord do such and such to me, and more so if I ever separate from you, Ruth says to Naomi. Similarly, Jonathan says this to David. May the Lord do such and such to me, and more so if I fail to be loyal to you, David. But here, the psalmist adapts that formula and he puts it upon them and he says, what will the Lord do to you and what more? What will he give to you and what more will he give to you? What will he add? In other words, do you know what's coming to you? Here's what he's going to add. He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows and with burning coals of the broom bush. Literally, it just says he'll give you the warrior's arrow and he'll give you the burning coals of the broom bush. Now, the broom bush was a tree whose roots were often used as fuel for fire. And there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not these arrows and these coals are meant to be taken literally or metaphorically. What is abundantly clear whether the psalmist is saying that they will meet the judgment of warfare, they will literally be killed with arrows and burning coals, or whether they will metaphorically be punished, what is abundantly clear is that the arrows and the flames are likened to the sins that they have been committing. And so this is a retributive justice. 
In the book of Proverbs, we read a proverb that describes the person who runs their mouth carelessly and says, I was just joking, as someone who is pictured as just firing off random flaming arrows into the air. What the psalmist is saying is, he's saying God is going to deal with you. So he could accommodate, he could take up his own vengeance, but instead he chooses to cry to the Lord, and he cries, Lord, save me. Tremper Longman writes, the psalmist implicitly longs to be at home and not far away, and for him, home denotes safety. Home would be near the place where God makes his presence most palpably real on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But probably the saddest picture, the saddest thing about this psalm is how it ends. It ends with this sorrow of misunderstanding. See, he says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This man is trying to bring a message of hope, a message of love, a message of peace and well-being, but instead, whenever he opens his mouth, his words are twisted. And the people with whom he's engaging, the people in his community, they become hostile to him. One thinks of the way Jesus' words were twisted. One thinks of how at his trial, there were witnesses who were paid off by the ruling authorities who were bribed to come and to give a false accusation against Jesus. We think of how Jesus' claims to speak for the Father were interpreted as him having a demon. One thinks of Christians today who often are misinterpreted. The great story in the Old Testament that brings this point home is the story of David and Nabal. Nabal, his name means fool, and his life lived up to that. You see, David, after the death of Samuel, and everyone had gathered and was mourning Samuel the prophet, David and his band of, of outcasts had, had returned to sort of the fringes on the run from Saul. And, and as they're sort of occupying these these fringe borderland places, they come across the shepherds of Nabal. And the shepherds of Nabal are protected by David and his men. And when it comes time to shear the sheep, David sends some of his servants to Nabal looking for help, looking for some bread. And Nabal turns around He shames them, he disgraces them, and he sends them back, and he says, I don't have time for people like you. You see, David's care and his protection was totally twisted and reinterpreted. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe in your faith, you've been trying to speak truth and love and grace to people in the name of Christ, and it's just twisted. Maybe you're weary from this war. Derek Kidner would write that this little passage here, it's a classic comment on the unequal yoke 
the incompatibility of light and darkness, which no amount of goodwill short of capitulation or conversion can resolve. And so here the New Testament counsels the Christian in this context against two opposite errors. On the one hand, compromise, and on the other, animosity. What do we do when we find ourselves in this place? This is a really important question. Because as Christians, this is our reality. We cry to the Lord for deliverance. Now I'm suspecting that many of us are waking up to this reality right now. If you've been raised in Sydney your whole life and you thought sort of the, progression, the natural progression of your life was to go from one comfortable suburban lifestyle in your parents' home to your own comfortable suburban lifestyle in your home. You're getting a cold glass of water dumped right over your face right now because globally we are in turmoil. Because whether you look at the climate, whether you look at, at, at our health conditions, or whether you look at geo national politics, whatever, wherever you look, there is turmoil right now. And as a culture and as a society, we are being drawn closer and closer together so that we can be pushed aside to the margins. If there is something within you that yearns, this is not right, can I tell you, this is a song for you. Because this is a song that cries to the Lord for help. The next psalm we see is Psalm 121. You're probably much more familiar with this. And here is a song to see the helper when we remember the reason that we will arrive safely home. If Psalm 120 is, is a psalm of someone who is looking down at his situation and, and seeing hopelessness and is, is forced in pain and anguish to look up, the Psalm 121 is a psalm of somebody who's already left. Someone who said, I'm not going to dwell far from God. I'm not going to live among these wicked and pagan people. I'm not going to stay displaced and estranged from my creator. I'm going to journey to him. This is a psalm of somebody on the way. And if the question of where is my help comes out of pain in Psalm 120, here the question of where is my help comes out of a joyful reminiscence, a joyful remembrance. Psalm 120 is a psalm that shows the ever-expanding care and providence of God. It begins with a question, but the, the substance of the answer is what makes this psalm so glorious and beautiful. Note the interchange of I and you. Some scholars have suggested that this psalm would be sung by one person asking the question and then a series of other people going around in a circle answering the question. And I want you to have that in mind as I read it for you now. Psalm 121, the speaker begins, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? The psalmist is looking up. A look to the mountains is a look for stability, a look for permanence, a look for some sort of strength. And the answer 
is given, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My eyes look to the mountains for help, but my help comes from the one who made the mountains. You need to look a little higher. The one who created the cosmos. And then another speaks, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Probably better translated as a wish. May he not let your foot slip. May he who watches over you not slumber. And the answer given, indeed he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The one who sees the entire people of God sees you. And he sees your foot. And he sees where you trod. And then the next person in the circle might answer, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. This proximate comfort providing relief for your weariness. But the one watching over to provide relief also provides protection from the forces that are too big for you. From the greatest powers in the heavens, the sun and the moon. And finally, the last voice picks up the same theme and the answer moving along in the circle. The next says, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He won't just comfort you, he'll protect you. Keep you from all harm, he will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going. Both now and forevermore. This is a song to see the helper. As we remember the reason why we can be confident that we will arrive at home. Tremper Longman points out that this psalm picks up on the reality of wisdom literature where everyone is walking on a path. It's either a straight path that leads to life or a twisty dark path that leads to death. He says, the path stands for life journey, and here the psalmist is certain that God will give them sure footing on the path of life. And isn't this what we all want to know? Am I going to make it? Am I going to get there? Am I going to arrive? You may have started out with Christ, and you started with with great intention and great gusto and, and so much enthusiasm and passion, and you were ready And you've been going and walking the path for a while and you've let doubt creep in. And you're sitting as you watch this person step off the path and that person step off the path and you saw that person stumble over there and and you're walking and the longer you walk, you're beginning to wonder, am I gonna make it? The assurance here is that God will keep you in the path of life and you will arrive at the destination. You will make it. Again, Derek Kidner says here, he says, here is living help. Primary, personal, wise, immeasurable. Brothers and sisters, we need more than a guidebook. We need a personal God 
We need more than tips and tricks. We need a shepherd. We need more than an impersonal force. We need something greater than fate or fortune or karma. We need a personal creator. We need not just vague notions of the truth, we need the truth. We don't just need to think about salvation, we need to be made wise about salvation. And we need such supply that it can never run out. We don't just need grace for today, we need grace every day. We didn't just need to be forgiven and have our sins wiped clean. We needed to be taken. We needed to be washed. We needed to be clothed. We needed to be fed. We needed to be nourished. We needed to be adopted. We needed to be redeemed. We needed to be glorified. And we need to be brought into the kingdom. This is a help that we need. We cannot get there on our own. But here is help. Here is help. You see, the perspective is one of looking for help, but the position is one who is on the journey. And we see that God's care here is constant. His care is protective, it's comforting, it's directive. He shows you where to go. It's immediate as well as eternal. Now, those who are weary of the journey might be tempted to read this psalm and say, you know, I don't know if I can buy that. This sounds all lovely and beautiful, but really, he will protect you from all harm? You say, I stubbed my toe yesterday. I got this growth that I can't get rid of. I got COVID. Where is God in that? Those things are very different, by the way. <laughs> Again, one last time, I think Kidner is instructive here. He says, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. This psalm isn't saying you will never experience pain. It's not saying that. This psalm is saying that you will be protected and not destroyed. Your life. Now for those of us who see our life simply from a biological and a physical perspective, we will struggle with this. But you need to understand that is not the Bible's conception of what life is. Life is more than breathing and drinking, sleeping and eating. It is not simply your physical body. Your life encompasses the, your whole being, including and primarily your spirit. 
that thing that distinguishes you from the rocks and the trees and the dogs and the cats and, and every other thing in creation, the spirit that God gave you, the spirit that is dead in sin and transgression before it comes to Christ. Here, the promise is not that we will be comfortable, but that we will be protected. In fact, six times that word is used. Your translation probably says watches over, he watches over, he watches over. Six times it's reiterated. It's a term of guardianship, it's a term of protection. But what you need to see is the ever-expanding care of God. I threw together this hokey little diagram for you. (laughs) You see, it starts in the present moment. His protective care begins now. But his protective care is not just confined to, to what's going on in this moment. His protective care also covers our plans and our pursuits the calling that he's put upon our life. And it broadens even there because God's guardianship over us covers our entire existence. As one commentator said, it's hard to know what's more reassuring. That he watches over me now? Where I sit right now? Or that he's watching over me forevermore? It's hard to know what's more beautiful, what's more overwhelming. This psalm is a beacon and it is pinging with light, showing us where our true help is. It's in our creator, it's in our maker. You see, this picture was not entirely complete until Jesus would make his own journey to Jerusalem. And he made that journey to Jerusalem because he was obedient to his Father out of love for the Father and out of love for us. When we grow weary of the world, brothers and sisters, we're to turn our hearts to Christ. He will surely see us through. Jesus suffered that he might understand. He took on flesh that he would be made like us so that we could be made like him. Hebrews says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. To be a Christian means to recognize that I am not at home in this world and if you're trying to make your home in this world, stop. It's killing your faith. To be a Christian is to look to the Lord and to entrust him. Look what Peter writes. He says, you were called to this kind of suffering because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He knew the helper. And that enabled him to bear our sins in his body on the tree 
so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you have a heart that's ready for this journey? The first thing you have to decide is if you're going to leave. There will be no one in the kingdom of God who has not uttered like the psalmist in Psalm 120 and says, woe to me that I am here. There will not be anyone in heaven who preferred the world. There will be anyone in the kingdom of God whose delight was to dwell here. That's not to say that the goodness of God can't be seen in this life. He is abundantly good and blessed. But you will never deny yourself. You will never take up your cross if you're trying to build your own house here. And we will never make it if we think we have to rely on ourselves. You see, a heart that's ready for the journey is not only a heart, that, a heart that's ready to leave It's a heart that's ready to lean, to lean on Christ, to stop trying to do it in our own strength, to trust his protection. We want a faith that can sing both of these songs. As we said at the start, pilgrim songs are born when faith gives voice to hope. If faith is a walk, then hope is the spring in our step. While faith is sojourning, hope is singing. As faith moves, hope motivates, and where faith charts a course, hope has already anchored. Are you ready to make the journey? Let's pray. God, we give thanks for these songs. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are weary, who feel surrounded, who feel helpless. I pray for those who just long to be with you. Lord, may you hear their cry. May they cry to you. And Lord, we stop and we ponder and we give thanks that such a great and glorious God would come down to dwell with us. Wouldn't abandon us, but would watch over us. It is truly a joy to know you. We praise you today. We thank you, God, for your wonderful grace to us. We celebrate your goodness. We speak with delight of your care. Oh, Lord, forgive us for being short-sighted. And Lord, may we all meet on that day in your presence. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.